0: Turn now to Luke chapter 11. Please turn to Luke chapter 11. We will mostly be sticking to this passage. Um, There are a couple of other passages that I will reference. You can look those up if you wish. We'll read and then we'll ask the Lord's help in proclaiming this message. Now he was, Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 14, we'll read... To verse uh, 32. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls and if satan is also di- is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand for you say that i cast out demons by beelzebub and if i cast out demons by beelzebub by whom do your sons cast them out therefore they will be your judges but if it is the finger of god that by the finger of god that i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come among you When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor, in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person and passes through waterless places seeking rest and and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes in and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And that last state of the person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which, at which you nurse. But he said... Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and yet something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Father, there is much to understand in this passage. And we have to confess that in our flesh we lack understanding but we know that your spirit illuminates your word. Your spirit softens our hearts to your word, opens our eyes so that we can hear, that we can understand. We also know that the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. You know all of our hearts. You know those hearts which belong to you. You know those hearts which are still in a natural state. We pray that even today, a heart that is still in a natural state without knowledge of God, without faith in Christ, Lord, that by the power of your word through the Holy Spirit that you would bring even that heart to life and grant understanding. I pray for humility in proclaiming this message. I pray, Lord, that you would keep my lips from error and, Lord, also that you would help those who are here to listen with discernment. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been attending here for the past few months, you will know that Pastor Kevin has been reminding us through our study of Luke that the most important question that we can ask ourselves is, Who is Jesus? Our answer and our heart response to that question places us in one of two categories. For there are only two kinds of people in the world. Either we are believers or we are unbelievers, saved or lost, friends of God or enemies of God. Just as there are two types of people in the world, there are two kingdoms. And all the world's people, regardless of their nationality, belong belong to one kingdom or the other. They are either of this world or not of this world, of the kingdom of darkness or of the kingdom of light. Either they operate under God's authority or they bow to the prince of demons. Even the unlikely theologian Bob Dylan observed, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. The devil or the Lord. Those are the choices. There's no middle ground. Our text today begins with a very public clash between the two kingdoms. Clearly, exposing the true nature of each kingdom. It then sorts all spectators to this clash into either one kingdom or the other. Beyond this, it provides reliable tests that can help us discern between one kingdom and the other. As we will see, the kingdom of God is clearly manifest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will see him command demons by the finger of God, and we will know that the kingdom of God has come among us. The question for all is this, are we willing servants to this great king? Or do we oppose him despite all evidence? Do we attempt to hide ourselves under a threadbare cloak of neutrality? Let's begin by looking at the clash between these two kingdoms. It might help to imagine a boxing ring in the middle of a crowded arena. In Satan's corner of the ring stands an unnamed man possessed by a demon that was mute or who rendered the man unable to speech to speak. And it's really the demon in this case that represents the kingdom of Satan. In God's corner stands Jesus Christ, a man that who has already demonstrated his authority not only over demons but over sickness even over the wind and the waves. He has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Furthermore, he's taught in such a way that no man has ever taught, boldly calling first 12 men, then 72 to follow him, and then sending them out with authority uh, to heal the sick and cast out demons. Beyond all this, he has declared that sitting at his feet should take priority over everything else. He has even taught his disciples a proprietary way of praying. Think about the odds. A spirit whose only power appears to be taking away a man's speech? Up against this extraordinary champion with proven victories in every realm, it should be obvious that there is no contest. Predictably, Jesus quickly dispatches the demon and the man speaks. To the astonishment of the onlookers, it's a knockout. The fans go wild, except not everyone is a fan. Some are amazed and they marvel at what they've just witnessed. According to the parallel account in Matthew, they exclaim, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. We could classify these people as believers, because it seems that they truly revere the man they see before them. Their hearts are receptive. But others are not so supportive. Some blatantly accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. These are blasphemers. They have nothing but hatred for Jesus because they have already hardened their hearts. They cannot deny the miracle that they've just witnessed or the power that it has revealed. So they resort to what is called in logic an ad hominem attack. If you can't win the argument, attack your opponent's character. These men, which Matthew's account identifies as Pharisees, consider themselves favored by God, guardians of righteousness. In their minds, their words are not blasphemy, but pure righteous indignation. Jesus has challenged their traditions, exposed their hypocrisy, threatened their security, so he must be wrong. He must be evil. He teaches the same scriptures they've memorized. But his teaching is so far removed from their own understanding that it seemed alien. Like a foreign language. It's easy to speak evil of something you don't understand. And that's exactly what they do. I think when radio first came out, a lot of people kind of thought, Well, that's got to be the work of the devil. You know, that voice coming out of nowhere. You don't understand it. It's easy to speak evil through his power. Or pardon me. Though his power far exceeds anything that they've ever seen or anyone has ever seen, they cannot accept that it is from God. To do so would be to acknowledge that, for all their talk, for all their external righteousness, they do not know God at all. So they mock him. They blaspheme him. Were they to approach the scriptures with humility, they would recognize their Messiah and respond the way Simeon did in Luke chapter 2 when he laid his eyes upon the infant Jesus. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, and you, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Somehow, these Pharisees, these blasphemers, despite their privileged heritage and scriptural knowledge, have missed the very salvation that God has prepared in the presence of all the peoples. The great irony, as we shall see, is that in accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan, they betray their own unwitting alliance, allegiance to the prince of demons. In this group, then, of people who witness, the mute man's deliverance, are believers and blasphemers. But there is another group who at least outwardly seem to take a wait-and-see approach. I'm going to call these folks the betweeners. They are too diplomatic to come right out and say that Jesus is in league with Beelzebub, but they're a long way from being in his corner. Outwardly, they walk the mythical middle ground between belief and blasphemy. Inwardly, they know exactly where they stand. Our text says that to test him, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. The key to understanding the betweeners is knowing their motives. When the text says that their purpose was to test him, it does not suggest that they meant to examine his teaching and miracles and thereby determine his character and vindicate his claims It means they wanted to prove him a fraud. They were committed to the opinion that they had already formed about him. And they kept demanding greater and greater signs in hopes that he would fail their test. They weren't looking for reasons to believe. They were looking for reasons not to believe. If we just examine Jesus' signs that I've already mentioned, the evidence of his divine origin and power is beyond obvious. But it was not enough. They clamored for the elusive sign from heaven. They would be satisfied with nothing less than God Almighty stepping down from his throne and giving personal testimony to Jesus. Ironically, it was truly God that now stood before them in the flesh, knowing their thoughts Enduring their skepticism, the sign from heaven stood in their midst and all they could see was an obstacle to be removed in order that they might continue in their self-righteous pursuit of bringing God's kingdom to earth by their own righteousness. (coughs) So we have before us the scene, Jesus having demonstrated the divine authority, his divine authority by casting out a demon, is surrounded by a microcosm of humanity consisting of believers, blasphemers, and BETWEENERS. This is what the scriptures call a teachable moment. The stage is set for the master teacher to lay bare the truth about kings and kingdoms and the human heart. Luke introduces the teaching section by reminding us in verse 17 that Jesus knows the people's thoughts. He sees through all disguises and all pretense, discerning the motives behind their words. He is God, after all. As he begins to teach, he does not neglect anyone in the crowd. If they are listening at all, they will recognize themselves in his remarks. They will be compelled to respond one way or the other. Jesus begins by addressing the blasphemers in the second half of verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. By the way, the Jews use the name Beelzebul as a disparaging nickname for Satan. Beelzebub was a pagan deity worshipped by the people of Ekron. You can read a little account of some of this worship in 2 Kings chapter 1 if you want to look that up. His name means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. I had some fun thinking of some synonyms to Lord of Dung, like Monarch of the Manure Pile or Oligarch of the Outhouse. They all work. In any case, to associate anyone with Beelzebub, would be a supreme insult. And if that person happened to be the Son of God, it would be a supreme blasphemy. In addressing the Pharisees, Jesus exposes the faulty logic behind their blasphemy. In effect, he says that it would be pretty stupid for Satan to cast out his own demons. Because then he would be fighting against himself and his kingdom would come to ruin If Jesus were working for Satan, it just wouldn't make sense for him to plunder Satan's kingdom. The Pharisee's accusation is ridiculous on its face. Jesus' argument is sound, yet when I read it, I get the sense that he's toying with his adversaries on another level. He seems to be exposing the Pharisee's ignorance about the nature of Satan's kingdom and the limits of his power. We know already from our study in Luke and from the broad context in the scripture that Satan's kingdom will not stand. We have seen Jesus thwart Satan's attack using only the word of God when he was tempted in the desert. We know that Genesis, in Genesis 3:15, Jesus, the offspring of the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the servant, uh, the, pardon me, the serpent's offspring. We know that From the book of Revelation, Satan will be confined into the abyss, loose for a little while, then thrown into the lake of fire, along with his followers to be tormented throughout all eternity. Jesus is not saying that there's any possibility that Satan's kingdom will stand. It will ultimately be demolished, crushed by none other than the word of God in the hands of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. We see no evidence in scripture of Satan waging war against himself. He's far too narcissistic for that. His defeat comes exclusively through the hand of God, or as Jesus says, the finger of God. Compared to the Pharisees, compared to the Pharisees' own efforts at casting out demons, Jesus' victory over that mute spirit looms as a massive triumph. We know this because the people marvel. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. And that's saying a lot because these people know their Torah, and they know their history. Apparently, this exorcism outshines not only anything they've read about, but also any of the exorcisms the Pharisees have performed, and even those performed by Jesus' own disciples. It is in the light of this overwhelming display of power to vanquish Satan that Jesus says to his adversaries, if I cast out demons by the power of uh, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. The underlying truth we must assume from Jesus' words is that the Jews' success in casting out demons is an embarrassing failure compared to that of Jesus. So if he's having such success, ostensibly through the power of the devil, then where are the Pharisees' exorcists getting their power? If it's from God, there's a big problem. Satan would appear to have the upper hand. And everything that the Pharisees and the Scriptures teach about God will be overturned. The Pharisees well know that God's power dwarfs Satan's power. It's not a battle that, that uh, we can see that the, uh, there's some possibility of Satan ever winning. The truth is that the Pharisees would invoke all kinds of names when they cast out demons. According to John Gill's commentary, the Jews pretended to cast out devils and heal those that were possessed with them, which they did sometimes by making use of the names of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and sometimes the name of Solomon. The Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus also attested personally witnessing this very practice. It seems probable then that Jesus knew of this practice and expected his foes would associate these names with their exorcisms. When he says, by who your sons cast them out, he already knows their answer. So we can see now that Jesus has the Pharisees backed into a corner. Their accusation that he has used the power of Satan to cast out demons is proven illogical and ridiculous. Adding weight to this is the Pharisees' own abysmal record of failed exorcisms. Christ's authority clearly exceeds theirs, so their delusion about being on the side of God is exposed. Ultimately, they will be judged by those upon whose names they rely to cast out demons. They will stand condemned by their beloved patriarchs. Having put to rest the hypothetical possibility that that he casts out demons by the power of Satan, Jesus introduces another hypothetical, but this one is clearly supported by both facts and logic. He says in verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. These words must have sent a chill down the spines of Jesus' detractors. What, is, what if he really is who he says he is? What if we are really standing in the presence of the king? Had they allowed themselves to dwell for any amount of time on these things, they might have over, been overcome like the prophet Isaiah in the presence of the Lord. When he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When he says, Whoa, the only thing that he is thinking of is I'm doomed. I have no right to be here and live. And you know what happens in the text. The sins are atoned for. The angel takes a cold and touches his lips. And God gives him a commission to serve him. But let's try to put ourselves in the place of these men. It won't be hard for some of us, for we were once blasphemers ourselves. Maybe some of us still are. Our lips have spoken unclean things, taking the Lord's name in vain, spoken ill of Christ's beloved bride, the church. We must consider the clear testimony of Scripture that bears witness to the historical Jesus, to his miracles, to his teachings, to his death and his resurrection. To what do we attribute his power? If he has done these things by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon us. We have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Dare we stand in pride, defending our own righteousness. If you're a believer who has come to the cross, you know the answer. We have no righteousness to defend. Woe is me, for I am lost, is the response of the broken and contrite heart. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And such a heart the Lord will not despise. As we continue in chapter 11, Jesus lays out two parables which illustrate the contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. These serve as templates to aid in the essential tasks of of discerning between the work of God and the work of Satan. Now, this discernment might seem like an easy task on the surface, but we must be aware that Satan is a deceiver who cleverly twists God's word to to suit his own purposes, who masquerades as an angel of light. While he does not cast out his own demons, he most certainly has them leave temporarily or shuffles them around to accomplish his goals. He would have people place confidence in false deliverance and indeed false salvation, thus leaving the door wide open to wreak havoc under the protection of false assurance. The work of Satan is marked by deception, sleight of hand. It is never complete, continually striving for the overthrow of Christ's authority. The work of God, on the other hand, is marked by truth, backed by supreme authority and unlimited power. Its hallmark is permanence. Its anthem is Christ's cry from the cross. It is finished. Though Satan is given limited power in this world for a limited time, God, who is outside of time, has already declared Christ the victor. When God begins a good work, He is faithful and just to uh, faithful to complete it. He never changes, and His plan is never thwarted. First parable is found in verses 21 to 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This parable describes the overthrow of Satan's kingdom by Christ. Satan is the strong man. He arms and fortifies his royal palace against the enemy, the one enemy that he fears. His palace is man, both in his individual and his collective state. Since the time of Adam and Eve, mankind has been his pursuit and his palace. He desires to imprison, dominate, and deceive, keeping them insulated from the power and salvation of God. His armor, his stronghold, consists of arguments and lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God. The goods within his palace are the souls he has deceived, sometimes even possessed. He and his demons vigilantly guard the fortress, having two mandates, to keep the captives in and to keep the enemy out. Satan is the strong man, but Jesus is the stronger man. His weapons are mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. He destroys Satan's armor, his proud arguments, opinions, and lies, moving in for the spoils of battle. The plunder that is gathered consists of the souls of men and women who seek mercy, who run to seek mercy and grace from their conqueror's hand. They join others who have gathered with him. Others do not recognize Christ's victory but see him as their enemy. They remain loyal to their tyrant king, their defeated king, and scatter for the hills, naively hoping for the ultimate overthrow of Christ and his kingdom. In this parable, we understand that Christ's victory over the kingdom of Satan is complete and overwhelming. Satan's armor has been confiscated, his strongholds destroyed. He has no power over anyone who trusts in Christ. Not only does, he, does Christ strip Satan of his armor, but we know from Ephesians chapter 6, he also equips his saints with the armor that enables them to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Though Satan desires to sit the saints' as wheat, to make war with them, to wear them out, he, has, he is a thoroughly defeated foe with no claim on the redeemed. All he can do is intimidate like a, by roaring like an old toothless lion. We also understand from the last line of this parable that there is no such thing as neutrality concerning spiritual kingdoms. Jesus clearly says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I believe these words are directed primarily to what I call the betweeners we discussed earlier, those who put Jesus to the test and sought a sign from heaven. The works of Christ and the words of Christ so clearly reveal his divine nature that there is no excuse for neutrality. The battle line is clearly drawn. His miracles and his teachings are recorded in scripture. His death and resurrection are engraved in history. His power and glory shine brightly whenever the gospel is preached, revealing the tottering remnants of Satan's kingdom. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, shows how obvious Christ's identity is to all the eyes that are not blinded by the God of this world. It says, Long ago and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God has spoken to us by his Son. With revelation of Christ's kingdom and character so clear, Neutrality is nothing but a naive myth. Those who seek a greater sign are deceiving themselves. Jesus declares this with finality at the end of this section that we read in Luke 11:29 29-32. It says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. and held something greater than pardon me and behold something greater than Jonah is here. Friends, we must guard ourselves against the notion that Jesus needs to prove himself in some new way. He has already proven everything he needs to prove by rising from the dead. Jonah spent 3 days in the belly of the fish, and he was vomited up on the shores of Nineveh can imagine what he looked like and smelled like by that time. People would have thought, this is a pretty impressive sign. He preached judgment to those wicked people and they repented. Jesus spent three days dead in a tomb. He emerged victorious after over death, over sin, over Satan. He appeared to his disciples in one case to a group of over 500. He ascended to heaven but not before promising to give the Holy Spirit to all of his followers, charging them to go to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel, gathering souls, rescuing them from Satan's kingdom. Something greater than Jonah is here. The sign from heaven has been given. The Son of God has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. His glory is revealed. As Elijah said to the idolatrous Israelites on Mount Carmel. How long will you go limping along between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Beal, if Baal, is God, follow Him. Neutrality is out of the question. To sum up the parable of the strong man, Christ's overwhelming victory over Satan is so <coughs> profound that it leaves no room for doubt. Therefore, those who seek a greater sign from heaven are not neutral at all. They have chosen to serve the strong man despite the stronger man's Christ's victory. Now let's look at the second parable, verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. In the parable of the strong man, we saw Jesus' kingdom thoroughly routed and Christ's authority firmly established. In a way, it shows us what happened behind the spiritual veil when Jesus cast that demon out of the man. It's a picture of Christ's authority in action this parable, on the other hand, makes no symbolic reference to Christ at all. It depicts an unclean spirit, leaving the person it inhabits, seemingly not in obedience to a command, but as an act of will. Goes on a little road trip, can't find a decent hotel, decides to go back home. On the way, picks up seven other demons, more evil in itself. It says, my house is swept and garnished. Let's party. Can you see the contrast between these two parables? In one, the victory is complete. In other, there's no victory at all. The second parable offers a commentary on the pathetic failure of those who think they can defeat evil without the power and presence of Christ. Many of the people listening must have thought to themselves, Ah, he's talking about the Pharisees now. They'd probably witnessed the very phenomenon of serial de- demonization before, and they couldn't help but think that Satan was making a mockery of these would-be exorcists. I've seen a Hollywood movie or two about demon possession, and I have to say that when those priests, with all the rituals and, and crucifixes and holy water, they, they, uh, they have this epic battle with these demons. To me, they look ridiculous Compared to the Jesus of Scripture, who commanded demons with the word, with supreme authority, and by the finger of God cast them out. Even in my own limited experience with demons, I have found that the name, the name of Jesus, just the name of Jesus, is more than effective in resisting them. The point here is that without the occupying presence, of the victorious Christ. There is no defense against Satan. You can do any ritual you want, say some magic words, sprinkle some water, brandish a crucifix, but if Christ himself does not take authority, indeed if his spirit does not come to indwell a person, that person is left vulnerable, a house swept and garnished. He he appears to the enemy as a beautiful home, ready for reinvasion. In the world of the Pharisee, appearance was everything. Satan played along with them in their exorcism rituals, allowing them to maintain at least a temporary veneer of authority. But he always got the, law, the last laugh. They were not commanding him. He was manipulating them. There's no, this is no different from the world of the pious religionist or the self-righteous person in our day. Such a person thinks himself capable of reforming his behavior, developing his character, becoming a better person, but all his striving does not change his heart. It is still deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It is a swept and garnished house open to Satan's attack. More importantly, it is in a state of rebellion against God, and has substituted its own righteousness for the forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness supplied by Jesus Christ. A person with such a heart thinks he is safe and secure. Satan supplies lies and reassurances to bolster his confidence. These two parables provide thumbnail sketches of the two kingdoms. As we observe teachers and ministries around us, we should be able to readily classify them into one or the other. We can also look at our own lives to see whether they are marked by the presence of Christ and the victory he brings, or by the persistent self-righteousness and the disappointment that brings. If we are confident of Christ's presence but struggle excessively with sin we most likely given in to the desperate lies of our defeated foe. In such a state, we need only look afresh to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the finisher of our faith, who cried from the cross, it is finished, who will return victorious to gather his elect and finally destroy the devil and all his works. If we confess our sins, Because of Jesus, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, however, on examining ourselves, we find no presence of Christ because we have never trusted in him, if we are blasphemers or betweeners, the solution is the same. Look to Christ Look to him who was lifted up on the cross, bearing the sins of rebellious people, drinking down the cup of God's wrath on their behalf. Look to him who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look to him who died in the place of sinners and who rose again for their justification. The sign from heaven is before you, the salvation prepared in the presence of all the peoples. Turn from that strong man who has deceived you. Turn from your own thoughts that deceive you, your own self-righteousness and lies about your goodness and worthiness. Turn to the stronger man who has stripped <coughs> Satan of his power and who will destroy him in the end. Before this, we finish with this passage, we must address one more group of people. Jesus has deftly handled both the blasphemers and the betweeners. But what does he have to say to the believers? In one sense, everything he has already said will benefit believers by clarifying the spiritual landscape around them and giving them confidence that they are on the right side. But what does he say specifically to the believers who witnessed this conquest over the demon? Take a look at verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nurse. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It seems to me that this woman, who pronounced this blessing upon the woman who bore Jesus, is a true believer. She's expressing her adoration for Jesus in a culturally acceptable way. Indeed, her response agrees with Scripture. Luke chapter 1, Mary's sister Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, greets the expected mother of Jesus. And by the way, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit at this time. She says, blessed are you among women. Blessed are you among women, the one who bore Jesus. Right? That's biblical. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary responds to Elizabeth and part of her response is this. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. So here in our text, the woman blesses the mother of Jesus, fulfilling in part of what Mary had prophesied. Certainly she does well to say this. She's not sinning by saying this. But Jesus' response has in it a note of caution. He said, blessed rather, he says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here's a reminder to all believers of all time about the importance of the word of God. Remember the sermon from a couple of weeks ago when Mary Magdalene sat at the feet of Jesus while her sister Martha busied herself with service? Mary was upset that Martha, pardon me, Martha was upset that Mary wasn't doing her part. But Jesus rebuked her and said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What was the good portion that Mary had chosen? To sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear him expound the scriptures, to partake of the bread of life. Because the scriptures testified of Jesus. That spiritual food was a better portion than the physical food Martha was busy preparing. It was the one necessary thing. Martha's service was not invalid or unimportant but it was secondary to listening to Jesus, to hearing his word. In the same way, honoring the mother of Jesus was not invalid or important, but it was secondary to hearing God's word and keeping it. You see, blasphemers hear the word of God and mock it. Betweeners hear the word of God and question it believers hear the word of god and keep it anyone can hear the word of god we've all got ears but maybe not the ears that are capable of hearing and doing it because only believers can hear and keep god's word not because of their own righteousness not because they are clothed in the right or pardon me but because they are clothed in the righteousness of christ God looks upon us and judges not on our own righteousness, but on the righteousness not our own. The righteousness that Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. We keep God's word not because we have reformed our own hearts, but because our hearts are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Christ has defeated the strong man, seizing his armor, demolishing his strongholds, and freeing the captive within. The stronger man, the stronger man, defends, keeps, and protects the rescued prisoner, equipping him with spiritual weapons and spiritual armor. Victory is assured, and in that, dear pardon me, and in that, dear believer's hand is the sword of the spirit, which is the Word of God. In closing, I want to return to Jesus' declaration in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look at the interesting phrase, the finger of God. Does it sound familiar? Where else in scripture do we find it? Two places. One occurs when Israel is captive in Egypt, and God is sending the plagues. He sends a plague of gnats. The Egyptian sorcerers, having been able to somewhat copy the plagues, cannot duplicate this one. And they say in the presence of Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. What happens next is chilling. The scripture said, but Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You see, it's the finger of God that renders all of Satan's tactics futile, that exposes his schemes, how he tries to imitate what God is doing. It exposes his lies, and yet Pharaoh and Pharisees and so many others harden their hearts The other reference to the finger of God occurs when God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The finger of God, that, it is the finger of God. Now God, we know, doesn't physically have fingers. This is an anthropomorphism um, so that we can understand that God is interacting. He is uh, doing his work in the world. It is the finger of God that engraves the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. We see that the finger of God then is associated not only with the unmistakable power of God, but with the very word of God. If I cast out demons by the word of God, by the finger of God, the authority of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Today the finger of God has been doing its work as the word of God has been proclaimed. (laughs) Will you harden your heart? You can open the scriptures and see clearly the wonderful works of God in Christ. You can see his triumph over sin, over death, over Satan. Will you still harden your heart? Oh, that Christ would graciously destroy the strong man's armor, regenerating your heart and freeing you from Satan's tyranny. Oh, that the finger of God would write his law, not on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. Let's pray.